Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 11. In today's episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Instead of giving you my thoughts on a particular coffee topic, I'm answering a few of your questions that you've submitted. I've picked three that had related topics about fermentation and temperature so that we don't just have three random questions that go all over the place. So I purposely picked these so that they would have something in common with each other. I've had a backlog of questions, and even though I could probably spend an entire episode on each one, I'm going to try to give shorter answers so I can get through more of your questions quickly. I've asked my partner, Nick, to read your questions to better differentiate between the questions and my answer. Hi, Nick. Hello. All right, let's start with our first question. Thanks for the podcast. I enjoy them because they provoke me to think about something I don't drink very often. I can appreciate the importance of thinking of coffee properly as a fruit, and that the seed, the part of the fruit with the greatest nutritional density, will therefore be altered by different growing conditions and practices. I remain skeptical about the role and importance of fermentation on coffee quality and flavor. If the process for removing fruit and mucilaginous material influences coffee flavor, then I suspect it will be worthwhile to explore many more processes than just fermentation. Maybe drying and torching the pulp and slime away will be useful. Maybe sandblasting will appeal to some people. Maybe power washing will do the trick. Maybe laser removal will appeal to techies. Maybe releasing a bunch of insects on the fruit will prove tasty. Since the seed is the main part of the product, it will be important to demonstrate that the liberation of the seed is an important part of the ultimate product and prove that it is important to coffee production. Take care. Rick from California. So I picked this question because it both makes me laugh, because um, I know Rick is being silly, but he brings up a really good point that I take for granted, which is that because fermentation is my work, of course I know that it's important for quality and for flavor differentiation, but I forget that if you're not in this industry, if you're not kind of from here, that's that's not a given. It's not a given that fermentation is important for quality. And I think that the way that he brought up those other removal processes is a really good illustration. So first of all, I'm really glad that he agrees that if we're drinking the product of a fruit, the way that the fruit is grown matters to flavor. But he's skeptical about the fermentation part. And I agree, if the fermentation serves a sole role of liberating the seed, then I see how it could be confusing to think that it matters. So for example, let's think of a pomegranate. There are many ways uh, many methods to remove the seeds from a pomegranate. If you look online, you can see a couple where some people will roll the pomegranate on the counter to kind of uh, loosen up the seeds and then they'll cut it in half and then they'll smack it with a wooden spoon and try to uh, shake them all out into a bowl. And I've seen another method where people will cut the pomegranate into quarters and then try and peel away the membrane. And then there's yet another method that involves doing it underwater and straining the seeds that kind of float to the top. So these are at least three different ways to remove the seeds from this fruit. And I think that we can all agree that none of them affect the flavor of the pomegranate because they're only really thinking about efficiency. Most of the videos that you see on YouTube are, you know, how to quickly or how, what's the best method to remove pomegranate seeds from the pomegranate. So those three methods that I just mentioned are basically mechanical methods to liberate the seeds from the fruit. 
So similar to the pomegranate or in th that line of reasoning where if the objective is to just get the seeds out, then the way that we remove the seeds doesn't really matter to flavor. Well, that concept was very much uh, in use by a lot of coffee producers. And historically, not everyone has thought that fermentation is an important part of, of the process and important to quality. It was seen as this mechanical way to remove mucilage and liberate the seed with no added value. And it was seen as this uh, like roadblock. So the industry tried to remove it and focused on efficiency as the sole quality uh, indicator, uh, efficiency and cleanliness as the quality indicators. But I can prove that fermentation matters in three different ways. The first way is that when this became very popular, when fermentation kind of went out of fashion and it was more efficiency and speed were the most valued uh, parts of processing, then a lot of producers st uh, started removing the fermentation step from processing coffee and a lot of the complexity of the coffee went away. Currently, most of my work is to take mills that remove the fermentation step out of their process and now try to put it back in in a controlled way. And the step was removed because it was thought to be inert and they wanted to shorten the process and get rid of the you know, fermentation altogether, hence the introduction of mechanical washers, um, also known as desmucilaginadoras or demucilagination machines. And they wash the mucilage off with jets and water and friction. And initially, the results were positive, and it was also seen as an ecological way to process coffee because it used much less water on the front end instead of allowing a traditional natural fermentation and then having to wash the coffee later in the tank or in long washing channels. So it was, like I mentioned, very popular because it was seen as more uh, environmentally friendly way. Um, a lot of the uh, pulpers that remove the mucilage mechanically are called eco-pulpers for this reason. Um, and another positive result is that it was said to improve coffee because it came out really clean and it prevented defects. But like I mentioned, the downside is that in some places, the coffee actually got lower in quality because it lost its character and it became kind of boring. And so that was a clue that there was something happening in the fermentation that it was additive, that there was something that was contributing to quality and not just this inert physical step. Another way to prove that it's important and what really gave me insight to start working in this field of coffee is that everyone kept telling me about over-fermentation, which is a defect that I discuss in episode four. So everyone agreed that fermentation is a source of negative flavors, a step in the process where coffee could be ruined. One of my favorite quotes is from Niels Bohr, a Danish physicist best known for his substantial contributions to quantum theory and his Nobel Prize winning research on the structure of atoms. He said, the opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may well be another profound truth. So the profound truth that the fermentation part of processing was a source of defects and strong negative flavors, well, that got me thinking that the opposite must also be true, that it can be a source of strong positive flavors. And another way that we know that the way that mucilage is removed from the seed impacts flavor and quality is the flavor effects of the Kopi Luwak coffee. The Kopi Luwak is a coffee that consists of partially digested coffee cherries, which have been eaten and defecated by the Asian palm civet. 
It is therefore also called civet coffee. So the cherries are fermented as they pass through the civet's intestines, and after being defecated with other fecal matter, they are collected. And whether you think this is gross or you've actually tried this and you think this coffee is delicious is really beyond the point. The point is that the external method of mucilage removal matters to the final flavor of the coffee. So there's something happening in this step that has previously been you know, ignored and thought to just be about removing the mucilage and preventing defects, that now the trend is towards you know, using this step to enhance the flavor potential of coffee. Thanks for your question, Rick. Next, we're going to move on to a question from Spencer from Peixoto Coffee Roasters in Arizona. Hello, Lucia. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I've been looking for something like this and I can't wait till you start doing deep dives into fermentation science. Would the amount of water added into the fermentation tank affect the concentration of fermentation byproducts found in the final product? Yes. Okay, moving on to question number three. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, well, the short answer is yes, absolutely. But to go a little bit deeper into Spencer's question, when he says fermentation byproducts, he's referring to the organic acids, polysaccharides, amino acids, alcohols, and aromatics that are part of the metabolism of yeast and bacteria in the fermentation. So really quickly, yeast and bacteria in the environment and they're on the skin, they're on in the water and the equipment, they're found all over the place. Once the coffee is pulped and the mucilage is exposed, then those yeast and bacteria can act upon the mucilage and they begin to break down the mucilage. And as they're eating it as they're consuming the glucose and fructose and some of the organic acids that are naturally found in the fruit, then they are excreting these organic acids, polysaccharides, amino acids, alcohols, and aromatics. So, you know, I like to think about it as what we're enjoying, some of these positive flavor characteristics are basically, you know, yeast farts and poop. And it's just our luck that we happen to like that. So in the fermentation, all of these byproducts are excreted into the fermentation tank. And the fermentations that I work on, I prefer to do them underwater so that you have a homogenous tank with all of these you know, byproducts. And what Spencer is asking is, you know, how much water should one add or, or does the amount of water that you add affect the, the concentration. And so if, it, if you're talking about concentration, of course, the quantity of water matters, um, but how much does it matter and in what direction does it matter? So the way that I like to think about fermentations is sort of like a, a soup. And if we want to concentrate flavors, then by the very nature of concentration, you want to have as little as possible, but enough so that you are covering and making the, the fermentation mass homogenous. So if you have the more water that you have in the fermentation tank, the more diluted the effect is going to be. And potentially uh, with a more diluted effect, then you are gonna have a lower concentration and it may take longer for those byproducts to get into the seed. So I err on the side of trying to be very concentrated and not putting in too much water so that you have a high concentration of those byproducts in your fermentation tank and the higher concentration allows those byproducts to get into the seed a little bit more quickly. So thank you for your question, Spencer. Um, now we're gonna move on to question number three for real. And this comes from Sam from Partners Coffee Roasters in New York. Hi, Lucia. 
Thanks for this very informative podcast. It has been my impression that fermentation temperature is largely responsible for flavor differences between submerged, in-water, and dry, out-of-water coffee fermentations. Can you elaborate on the role that temperature plays? So I think this question is really fantastic, and it touches something that I didn't get to mention in the previous answer with Spencer's question about the importance that temperature plays. And the role of temperature in any reaction is to speed it up. So higher temperature will speed up a reaction and lower temperature will uh, slow down a reaction. So when we're thinking about Spencer's, you know, how much water is, um, when you're thinking about the water level and the concentration, you would also want to consider the temperature of that water and factor that into the effects that could be going on during that fermentation. But what uh, Sam is talking about is he's comparing submerged and dry out-of-water coffee fermentation. So both of these have very different environments because one is underwater and, and one is dry. And he's right, they're experiencing very different temperatures. Um, usually when it's submerged and in water, it is a cooler fermentation because it takes a lot more energy to heat up that water. So those fermentations tend to be uh, lower temperature and a dry out of water coffee fermentation tends to be a much higher temperature. And so that reaction will happen more quickly, but it's not just how quickly those reactions are happening. It's also the species that are present in those environments. So when you have a high moisture content, that environment tends to uh, be more favored by bacteria. Bacteria need to have a high moisture content to be active and happy. When you have a dry out of water fermentation, that environment is a lot more conducive for a yeast fermentation. There's still bacteria that are present, for example, acetic acid bacteria, um, but it tends to be dominated more by yeasts. So don't think about just temperature and speed and rate of reaction, but think about the environment, the other environments that those two types of fermentation create. So let's move on to our final question from Bernard, and he's writing in from Mountaintop Coffee in Australia. So much thanks for this, Lucia. Such good info. Here's a question or two. We grow coffee at a very low latitude with some big differences in day and night temperatures during the long growing cycle. We have two main products, what we in this district call naturals, over-ripened coffee that can be in that state on the trees for months before being harvested, and the other is our very clean mechanically washed coffee. I have always been curious as to whether it is primarily yeast or bacteria causing the fermentation inside the fruit. Accordingly, would it be inherently different from induced fermentation done after picking the cherry? How would a taster know the difference between yeast and bacteria fermented coffee? So many questions within these questions. Thanks again though, and cheers! So regarding the first question about the naturals that are uh, fermented and dried on the trees for four months, that process, um, he's asking whether that is primarily yeast or bacteria causing the fermentation inside the fruit. So the size of a yeast is, is much larger than a bacteria. So because there are many different species of yeast and bacteria, these are pretty gross generalizations. There's quite a range between size of bacteria and size of yeast. But for example, the size of a bacteria can be between one to uh, micrometers and a yeast can be 30 to 40 micrometers in size. So if we're talking about a fermentation that's happening inside 
uh, it's very difficult for yeast to get through the skin if there's not any damage. So if the cherries are on the tree and let's say that some of them have been picked up by birds or maybe it rained and some of them burst and, and their skin split open in that situation, but they're still on the tree, in that situation, uh, I would say it would be both yeast and bacteria that are active. If there are cherries on the tree that are completely intact, that have not had any... Um, you know, any puncture, any insect damage or anything like that, but they're still fermenting on the inside, that is going to be mainly a bacterial fermentation because they are small enough to be inside and under the skin. Okay, so that's the first part. Would it be inherently different from induced fermentation done after picking the cherry? So it depends if it would be different because the yeast and the bacteria um, in the fermentation are coming from the skin and they're coming from uh, the farm. And so there's a, there's a, a version, right? So nothing's binary. It's not yes or no. It would be a, a spectrum on a range of very close to what's happening inside the cherry because the yeast and bacteria are coming from the exact same place. Or it, let's say the cherries have to travel very far and then they get put on a truck and the truck has its own you know, inoculum of yeast and bacteria that's present and then maybe it spends 10 hours in the truck or maybe the truck breaks down and it doesn't get there until the next day. Well, that's a very different fermentation happening there. So it depends how quickly that the cherries would get from the tree that they're harvested to, let's say, a fermentation tank. So it could either be very, very similar or wildly different. His next question is, how would a taster know the difference between yeast and bacteria fermented coffee? I'm not sure that we could really tell the difference between yeast and bacteria fermented coffee because they occur together. They're very um, intertwined. So completely parsing them out would be very difficult, except what I've said previously, where higher moisture uh, fermentations tend to be dominated by bacteria, but there will still be some yeast present. And lower moisture will be dominated by yeast, but there will still be bacteria present. And you know, this whole time we've been talking about yeast and bacteria, but we've forgotten that there's also uh, fungi and they are part of the mix as well. So we really have, you know, three different classes of microbes that are all active, all working together. So yeah, what I want to say about that is it'd be really difficult to tell the difference. They are both in both environments. Uh, but if you have a fermentation that, in my experience, very generally speaking, if you have a fermentation that is more dominated by bacteria, then you tend to have higher acid concentration. Uh, whereas with yeast, I tend to find those fermentations, while they do also produce acid, to be heavier in body and have more kind of mouthfeel, more weight, a little bit more structure to the coffee. And so that's why you want both. You don't want a coffee that only has, you know, this really sparkling acidity, but is has no structure or, or body to it. And conversely, you can have like a really fat, syrupy coffee, but without that acidity, it can feel, um, it can almost fall flat. So some of these topics that I mentioned in terms of, you know, the byproducts, the size of the microbes that are present in coffee, some of these different environments, I go into a lot more detail and pictures and diagrams in the worms and germs video and presentation that I have on my website. So if any of that was interesting to you, I would recommend you head over there because that's uh, almost an hour of 
you know, an even deeper dive into these topics. You would also get to see Sam Knowlton's presentation about soil health and a lot of misconceptions that we have about what makes a healthy tree and some of the nutrients that are needed for quality coffee growing. I want to thank everybody who wrote in. I really appreciate you guys taking your time and, you know, writing to me, asking me these really thoughtful, great questions, um, giving me an opportunity to talk about my favorite topic in the world, microbes and fermentation. If you're interested in more information and some pictures of some of the work that I do that goes along with these podcasts, I have a weekly newsletter that I send with every new episode that has some additional information and just kind of background into the episode. You can find the newsletter on my website at lucia.coffee slash podcast and lucia is spelled L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for hanging out with me this week and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.